Well, friends, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 18, or you can look at your worship guide. Now, as you look at the book of Proverbs, one of the major arguments of this book is this, it's a case for simply how we need relationships, how we need people in our lives, that these relationships are invaluable. They are a prize. They are a jewel. They are something to cherish that we need these relationships to be life-giving and godly. We need them to be wise. And Proverbs breaks this down for us. We need friendships to help us flourish. That if you're married, we need uh, healthy and godly marriages to thrive and flourish in life. And we also need to understand things about our families. And one of the ways that Proverbs makes this very clear to us, specifically about marriage, and there's this refrain throughout Proverbs. This is not part of our sermon text for us, but this is a refrain that's mentioned like eight times throughout Proverbs. And it's Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. And this is just a proverb that is helping us to get at this idea of quarreling and, uh, and nagging. But it's like the, the irritability of not being at peace within marriages within, uh, that are there. So Proverbs is bringing its wisdom to bear on a, a marriage. And so the point that I'm making today is that if you're married, you need to have a healthy marriage to thrive and flourish. If you're married, you need a healthy marriage to thrive and flourish. But we also need to be equally clear here that you do not need to be married to be godly or to flourish in life. For example, Jesus was not married. So if you're going to make the contention that you have to be married to flourish and be godly, well, you're just going to be dismissing Jesus. And scholars look at the Apostle Paul and they're like, the Apostle Paul Maybe he was, but maybe he wasn't. But when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was not married at that time. Now, I bring this up because American Christians, we have made an idol. We have made an idol out of family thinking and marriage, thinking that you have to be married in order to be happy or you have to be married in order to be godly. And so, for example, you think I'm overstating that, but I'm not. For example, a man comes to a pastor for counseling and he is sharing that he is tired of sexual temptation, whatever type it is. And so the pastor counsels him and tells him this, that if what you need to do is that you need to pray for a wife and get married. This, the, the, the advice actually is a false gospel in there. Because if you're getting married to escape sexual temptation, then your hope is in the wrong place. And that illustration is actually a picture of how we think uh, about marriage. Is that I'm only going to be married if I, I'm only going to be happy if I have a spouse. In that instance, you're looking for happiness in the wrong place. And so marriage is, by God's design, never meant to carry all the expectations of your happiness. It will completely break down, fall apart, collapse. Because marriage was not designed by God to bear all those weights and dreams. So today we're considering what Proverbs says about marriage. And it's and the purpose of marriage. But, and I know I shared last week, and for the past few weeks, we're going to be talking about parenting next week. We will actually in two weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about singleness. And because actually in reflecting on like the last time I preached upon marriage and the last time I preached upon singleness, that was five years ago. 
us a long time. And we want to be sensitive and minister to one another. And because we have people who in our church who are single and are married, and th- these sermons are meant to help us actually grow an understanding of what God is calling us to and how we can be praying for one another and encouraging us. So today is Proverbs, and next week we'll be thinking very specifically about singleness and then get to parenting. But with all that said, we got three verses to look at this morning. Proverbs 18.22, Proverbs 31.10 and 12. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word as we consider these, what God says to us today. Proverbs 18.22, 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And jumping ahead to 31. Verses 10 and 20. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. And in verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And Lord, we pray that you administer to us from whatever parts, points of life that we come from in our relationships, in our callings, in our relationships. Whether married or single, Father, we pray that you administer to our hearts that we would find you to be the source of our joy and not the good things that you have given us or the circumstances in our life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, as we begin, begin to think about marriage, I want to highlight that we as a culture have a very romantic notion of married, of marriage. Just think about some of the phrases. Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. The one, Prince Charming. There was this movie uh, like 25 years ago. It was a, a Tom Cruise mo- movie, Renee Zellweger, uh, Jerry Maguire. And, and Tommy, uh, Tommy, I'm not friends with Tommy, but... <laughs> Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger's character. Thank you for laughing. But Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger, and he's full of excitement. And he says, you complete me. You complete me. And the reality is, no. No one can bear that burden where one person is saying to another, you complete me. Because... That is not how we're made. And these romantic notions, Mr. Wright, Prince Charming, you complete me, are actually quite detrimental. They're detrimental. And if we buy into them, then we will hurt ourselves and others. And this is not simply the wisdom of Proverbs. This is actually something that is seen and observed by the secular world around us. For example, here's the New York Times in 2016. This is an op-ed that is entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Really? Here's the New York Times. Compatibility is a myth, is the idea that no two people are actually compatible. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be as preconditioned. Romanticism has been unhelpful to us. It is a harsh philosophy and way of life. It has made a lot of what we go through in marriage seem exceptional and appalling. We end up lonely and convinced that our union with its imperfections is not normal. We should learn to accommodate ourselves to wrongness, striving always to adopt a more forgiving, humorous, and kindly perspective 
on its multiple examples in ourselves and others. And so what the New York Times is actually arguing is that romanticism dooms you to disappointment. Romanticism dooms you to cynicism. And cynicism is this I, it's an ugly pessimism combined with skepticism, meaning that nothing w- will ever change, and I don't think it's possible. And so, like, you're kind of, like, dooming yourself to that mire of muck. And so this is how our culture thinks about marriage. It's very romantic. But if that is what you, are, what you think about marriage, then you're going to be quite pessimistic about it. You will be disappointed in the end because it actually offers you no hope. It offers you no hope. And Proverbs actually has a very different way of talking about marriage because it's Proverbs as a book is rooted in reality. It's rooted in the reality of our brokenness, but it's also the word of God. And so it's pointing us to the hope that of wisdom and godly living. Because, so Proverbs is offering us a better course here. And this is for a very simple reason. No one here invented marriage. The New York Times did not, the world did not. Marriage is actually God's idea. God is the one who made marriage in the very beginning at creation, and he spoke about marriage all throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, this is mind-blowing, that Jesus' first miracle is at an, a tiny, obscure wedding in the middle of nowhere where he turns water into wine. That, that is, so Jesus is giving his blessing and his approval on marriage there. But marriage is God's idea. And so as we think about this, we need to ask the question, since marriage is God's idea, what is God's purpose for marriage? Why is God saying that when we find a godly spouse, there is blessing and favor there? And so this is the question I want us to focus on this morning. What is God's purpose for marriage? And quite honestly, this is a trick question. Because there's not just one purpose, there's many purposes of marriage. You cannot reduce marriage to just be about one thing. It's actually about something else altogether beautiful and different. Like, for example, just you can go to any person, any married um, individual, and say, why did you get married? And as you get into this conversation, you'll find that the answers will be all all over the place. They can be like, well, I love someone. Um, I want to spend the rest of my life with someone. Uh, like, I want to start a family. Um, I want to have stability, and so on. While each one of these things is actually right, in a sense, they, it's not the whole picture. But many people make those things the whole picture. And the reality is, Only Christ can actually give us the whole picture of marriage because the purpose of marriage in God's design is to cultivate Christ-like love. The purpose of marriage is to cultivate Christ-like love, and we see this in a few ways. And again, this is from the book of Proverbs. The first is a redemptive love. Redemptive love. When God made marriage, where he gave Eve to Adam, he made for Adam a companion, one who is a lover, yes, one who is also a friend. And so as we've been talking about friendship the past few weeks and months, the things about friendship also ought to be true about marriage, but it's also more than that, of constancy and faithfulness and loyalty and transparency. But And here's Proverbs 2. 
Proverbs 2, verse 17. And this is in the context of talking about the value of wisdom. And there's some words here that we're going to be considering for the next few moments. I'll read verse 16. And so you see the contrast that's going on. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So here's the teacher writing down Proverbs in the way of wisdom and commending it to us that wisdom will deliver us actually from sin. And in this case, we are seeing something referred to here about marriage. Verse 17, the companion of your youth covenant with God. See, this proverb is speaking about marriage in a very particular way that demands us to highlight. The word companion is the Hebrew that could be translated special confidant or best friend. Special confidant or best friend. And this is actually exceptional for the ancient time. Because in the ancient time, women were the property of men, so to speak. That marriage was to bolster or to improve his social status without regards to her. And so that's in the ancient world. But even in today, this is, again, exceptional and quite different. Because in today's world, with an emphasis on sex, romance, and recreation, it's actually very different to say that your spouse should be your best friend for life. That your spouse should be your best friend for life. And this is very hard to live through and live by. In fact, if you speak with married people, and if you're married, you know this, that there will be times in your life that you will feel alone. And that feeling of loneliness within marriage is actually awful. Because you feel like an, an island and that you can't even lean on the person that you married. And so in these, this reality is that two sinners in marriage, when you get married, two sinners marry one another. And so we say that marriage <coughs> is, excuse me, is redemptive because the purpose of this friendship, the purpose of being companions is actually to sanctify one another. This is Ephesians 5.26. That marriage is meant to be the most powerful and the most redemptive relationship in your life. If you're married, to sanctify you, to perfect you, to make you holy and blameless. So when you think about what is marriage for and the purpose of marriage, it is for helping you become more glorious, to become the, your future glorious selves in Christ, where you are the best version of yourself. And that can only happen, and this is true for anybody and everyone, that you can actually, you can only grow in Christ when you are in an environment and in a environment of relationships that love you, that are caring for you, and where you are receiving Christ's love and drawing on Christ's love to love others. And so this is a picture of redemptive love. And so here's Tim Keller from his book, um, The Meaning of Marriage. Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It means to look at another person whom God is creating and making and say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. So that when we get to glory, I will say your magnificence and say, I saw glimpses of this. I saw a preview of this. But look at you now. I always knew you could be like this. And so as we think about this, that the type of Christ-like love that marriage is a picture of is this redemptive love. And it presupposes the messiness and the brokenness and the sins of our life. It presupposes that. And so this means that our relationship of marriage, that, the, that marriage 
must be marked by God's faithfulness. It must be marked by God's loyalty. And this is the idea of a covenantal love. And again, you saw this in 2.17. This woman forgets the covenant of her God. So it's, it's not just a redemptive love, it's a covenantal love. And so it's reasonable to ask the question, why are we referring to marriage as a covenant? And the simple reason is that a covenant within Scripture has a vertical relationship. It's about us and God. It's also a horizontal relationship. It's about us and other people. And so if we're going to break the horizontal relationship, we're actually breaking our relationship with God. If we're breaking our relationship with God, we're sinning against the other person. So in other words, to say that we are either faithful faithful to God, we're faithful to one another. If we're unfaithful to God, that means we're unfaithful to one another. And so this is what a covenant is. It has a vertical and horizontal relationship. But so as we understand the messiness and the brokenness and the sin of our life, the reality is that we, the only way for us to truly commit to, to one another is to have help from the outside. Because we're sinners. We are actually, by definition, we are the unfaithful ones. We need someone to come to us who is faithful, and that's God and Jesus Christ. But the dynamic that we see in our own lives is that when we have this love for others, we actually desire to make it permanent to one to one another. This is, we're seeing a picture of God's love. So when two people come together, they make vows to one another. They commit to one another. I will always love you, for example. And this happens within friendship, too. I have, I, I have friends who make vows to one another. And so they'll say that despite geography, despite moving across the country, they will always be involved in each other's lives and in the lives of their children. See, we love desires and moves towards permanence, that this is how it ought to be. But any married person can tell you that there are days they'll wake up and be like, I don't feel like I'm loving you right now. Or we're going to bed angry, so to speak. And this is when we know, and we need to know that marriage, that love is not an emotion or a feeling. It's actually about an action and commitment. And this is how we say that marriage is a covenantal, that Marriage is a covenantal love because we're making vows before God and one another, to one another, that even despite our lack of feeling it, we're going to love one another. And so it's important for us to think about, like, as we're making, as within marriage, you make vows to one another, but what, upon what lines should this be? And there's this idea that there's a contributing love. And again, this is another picture of Christ likes Christ's love for us. Because God calls us to make something of this world. You look at Genesis, and Proverbs is actually all about this, about making something of this world. Like Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The point is that we are culture makers and contributors. And within marriage, you're partnered in this task. He calls you to make culture, simply making something of this world. So having babies, making families, making homes, and so on. But that's not the only way to subdue this world to make culture and have dominion. Our work, our careers are in other ways that we fulfill this mandate. But simply put, or put it this way, have you ever felt like you're working against someone? That you're trying to do something and someone is resisting you? That despite your best efforts to move forward, someone is resisting you? 
Have you ever felt that? I have. Jennifer and I, for the past several months, we are fixing up our house. And we're close. We're close. We're close. And my personal inclination is that once I start moving, I don't slow down. And so when Jennifer, understandably, she'll ask clarifying questions, simply to understand what I'm doing, how I'm doing that. And I can internalize that as like, why are you questioning and not valuing my contribution? And so in those moments, she'll say something that I deeply need to hear to let go of whatever insecurity I may have or, or and that enables me and empowers me to stop being defensive. And she says, honey, we're on the same team. I just need to know what you're doing so I can help you. The point right there that I'm making is that there's a partnership. There's a teamwork in this environment that's there. And we are contributing to what God is doing. That's what is, I'm talking about in this idea of contributing love. And so Andy Crouch, in his book, Culture Making, he writes this, family is culture at its smallest and most powerful. And so consider all the things that bother you in the culture all around us. You have no agency, really, or power to affect change on that. But you have incredible power to affect the change and influence your own family. That's what Crouch is saying. So you're in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships, we're able to contribute to God's work. And this includes... Supporting, if, when you're married, supporting one another in your work, having families, ministering to others. We, you notice we read Proverbs 31, verse 20. Here's a godly w- a woman, and she's ministering to others. So it, the, the ministry itself is another way of contributing. And so as you think about your, your life, how can you contribute and partner within God and his work to this world? And this is where we see, like, it's not just exclusive to marriage, but it's also our relationships as well. That we have been united together and we're working with Christ, working with one another to advance his kingdom. And so moving on to our, the last element of Christ-like love here. So that within marriage, you are pledging yourselves to one another. You're pledging yourselves to be partners together in a way that is exclusive and intimate. It's a love that is shared between you and your spouse. And so as we think of now, as we're thinking about intimate love for a moment. That scripture is quite clear. Uh, like, do not commit adultery. And so as like we see Proverbs talking about, um, <coughs> excuse me, obedience to the Lord with our whole bodies. And so like when we, th- here's what Jesus says. Even if you lust in your mind, you have committed adultery. That's what Jesus says. And so a large number of Proverbs is dealing with sexual temptation and faithfulness to God and honoring vows. Like Proverbs 5 is all about this. All about this. Like delight in, in, delight in this gift of marriage is what God tells us. And so there's this intimate love that we see. And this intimate love is meant to be a picture of God's love for us. So here's, and this is why, and here's Ray Orland, because this love must have physical expressions. This is something that we see in any friendship, relationship, that love has a physical expression. Gifts at Christmas time, gifts on birthdays, those are examples of, what, of this dynamic I'm talking about. But within marriage, it's unique. 
to have a full sexual relationship with somebody is to give physical expression to what is meant by covenantal relationship, where it's stable, faithful, and permanent. To say physically I'm giving myself to you while emotionally and spiritually holding back from covenantal commitment is in fact to live a lie, a split in the relationship, which is ultimately destructive and stressful and harmful. That's Ray Ortland, but the Apostle Paul puts it differently. No, he didn't put it differently. He put it a different way, I should say. He put it a different way. Paul puts it this way. He quotes Moses. He quotes Jesus. The two will become one flesh and marry members of one another. And in marriage, your body is not your own. But in the same verses, this is where Paul continues. But do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The point is our bodies have never been our own, but are Christ's. See, when we follow Jesus Christ... We're not just giving our mental assent to Jesus. we like, oh, I need to believe the right doctrine or where we believe the right things. When we follow Jesus Christ, we're giving him our entire life. Our entire life. We're giving him our bodies. In the, in the liturgy, we have the offering. We give to him our treasures and our possessions. That when we follow Jesus Christ, we are saying that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. That includes everything about us. Marriage or single because you are married to Christ. And this is the picture that we have for us in Revelation, which was our call to worship. That we have a picture of a bride coming down and being presented to Jesus, and that's you. And you've been joined by grace to the Lord. To think that we are, each one of us is married to Christ. That we have been brought into union with the most loving person Period. God is love, and he has united himself to us, that he is pouring out his love in us. He's giving us his love and giving his love to us with, all his, heart, with his heart. He is so closely identified with us. that The Bible says that, that we have, are of the same spirit, the way that a man and woman would become one flesh. But to say that you are of one spirit is deeper, it's more intimate, it's more profound like, think about any relationship that you have. You can never say, we're on the same page all the time. You can't say that. But here's Christ saying that we are of the same mind. And this is incredibly gracious. It's incredibly gracious because we are sinners. God loves us. Jesus redeems us. Jesus redeems people no one else would die for. No one else would die for me. Jesus would be the one who would die for me and rescue me and cherish me. That Jesus is the one who loves you to the fullest and his love for you is redemptive. He's making you glorious. He's making you into the best version that you are meant to be, the person whom God has made you to be. He's, this love is covenantal. He is faithful to you despite your faithlessness and he is never going anywhere. As we sang earlier, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so he's drawing you into a story, partnering, he's making you a partner with, enabling you to partner with him in his work. And he gives himself to you, knowing you, accepting you, loving you in, our, in your sinfulness and brokenness, delighting in you. And so this is the picture of marriage, what marriage is meant to be, and it's a calling that no one can live up to. Well, but Christ, but Christ can, and Christ does, and he did, that he loves you, he redeems you. He redeems people in their sinfulness, that at our worst, Jesus looks at you and loves you and dies for you. 
That is an incredible picture. And this is the one whom Scripture talks about as our bridegroom. And we are the one united to him. Let me pray for us. And let's continue to worship our God. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us. Lord, like marriage is this incredible picture of your love. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray for one another and encourage one another. And Lord, um, we just pray that you would help us because this love that we've been describing is completely outside of us. But Lord, help us to draw on you, to draw, to lean on you, to look to you as our help and our strength. And Father God, <coughs> excuse me. We we pray that in our lives, that our lives would be an incredible picture of your love for us and this lo- your love for this world and that would be compelling and that would draw people to, to you, to know you and to, because you are our hope. You are the one who satisfies our hearts. You are the one for whom our hearts and souls long for. So we pray that you would continue to show us your beauty and grace and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name I pray, amen.